We are now in chapter 9. Last chapter of hearing God. Woohoo! Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we are done. And um, so one question I would like to ask all of us, for those who have been journeying with us this far, how are you doing? Reason why I ask is, before we came into this series, you were at this place with God, right? All, well, you know, it's all relative, like, I, you know what I mean. We're at this, everybody was at one point in their relationship with God, at one point. Can you say that you're at this point now? After this, as we journey through this? Or are we still, are you still here? That's not for you to answer now, but it's something that, you, that we all should have a conversation with God. Because it, like, I could, we could fill all data and information and practices, do's and don'ts into our minds, but until it reaches to our heart and into our being and our existence, what's the point? I could dish out on this podium 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and scratch your brain and tickle your hearts and make you feel like, wow, this is a great sermon. But then if it doesn't impact your life, if it doesn't impact the way you, you are, your being, what's the point? If Christianity, you believe because like, it's just for a ticket to heaven and fire insurance, for instance, you know, and coming to church is just to pay rent for your safety deposit box just because to protect your fire insurance, what's the point? Christianity is not just believing. Yes, it is. That's the first part. But you know that other religions, when people really truly believe the one thing that, that, that they believe, they live it out. Our Muslim brothers live it out, definitely. But do we live it out on what we believe? So therefore, again, the question is, how are you doing? Are you here, back to square one, or have, we, have you notched a little bit closer to God? If not, if you would like somebody to journey with you, if you would like to like, uh, have a chat and talk about it and have somebody to pray with you, to, have, to increase that and draw closer to God, allow Pastor Fritz and I to join that journey with you. All right, chapter nine. For those keeners out there, you may have noticed that the book that we're using, Dallas Willard's book, is divided into three parts. I mentioned this last week, but for some of you who were not here last week, I'll do it again. First part from chapters one to four, he goes on and says, why is it important to hear God? Why? Well, because that's our life. Our life encompasses hearing God. Uh, that's what Christians are. Christians, have, the reason why we're called Christians is because we have a relationship with God through Christ. That's what makes us who we are. And if we say that we firmly say and we confess that we say that we have a relationship with Christ or relationship with God, by golly, we should be talking to him. Right? Like if I have a relationship with my wife, Rosanna, and I don't talk to her ever. Do you guys think we're married? Well, the legal papers say we are, but are we married? My ring says we are. No. If I was a good friend with Brian and we never talk, right? Well, we do, but I'm just saying, if we never talk, would we say that we're friends? No, right? So in chapters one to four, the whole summary of that, if you're just, if you're still, if you haven't read the book yet, chapters one to four, the basic main point is, you claim to be Christian, now talk to him. 
And how do you do that? Well, that's the next few chapters. Chapters five to seven responds to the question of how, first of all, do we prepare our hearts in receiving God's word? Not just the Bible, but really in the midst of your quiet time on the bedside or during your workouts or whatever, or like my dad, toilet time. He spends half an hour on the toilet. Don't know why, but I do know part of it is his devotions on the, there. It's that how can we sense his voice amongst other voices? Because all of us are in the Western hemisphere and we're very busy. So we always have a lot of voices speaking to us, whether it be our kids, whether it be our bosses, our coworkers, colleagues, our consciousness, we're really busy up here, right? How can we shift, sift that out and determine that, yes, that silent voice right there, that's God. And I'm gonna to listen to him. Chapters eight to nine, and last week and this week, is about how do we discern it's really God's voice? And today, is how do we really discern when he's not talking? How about when he, he decides not to talk to us? He thinks, so that's where we begin. When God decides not to speak, what happens? Is he still talking to us? All right, April, let's show a video. When he brought a 90 pound asthmatic onto my army base, I let it slide. I thought, what the hell? Maybe it'd be useful to you, like a gerbil. <laughs> Look at that. He's making me cry. Hodge passed every test we gave him. He's big, he's fast, he obeys orders. He's a soldier. He's a bully. You don't win wars with niceness, doctor. You win wars with guts. Grenade! <laughs> Get away! Get back! It's a dummy grenade. Is this a test? He's still skinny. The reason why I showed this video is because we're talking about instinct. Instinct. People who are genuinely good, and I know a few in my lifetime, i.e. they exist as good people, in general, it appears that they, on my observations, they don't need to debate within themselves when it comes to doing what is right. They don't, they just do it. Steve Rogers um, instantaneously covered the grenade to protect everyone else from a possible explosion. My old friend, um, okay, just as a side note, because I just find it really funny, my old friend, I've known him since we were four, and then I always wondered why he has the same colored fleece sweater on. Rosanna knows who, he, who I'm talking about. Well, it's because you know why? He found a sale and he bought 12 fleece sweaters of the same color. Okay. <laughs> All right, so well, anyway, my old friend who, he, do you know what he does? He immediately gives money to panhandlers or someone in need. How? Because he keeps a budgeted amount of money in his pocket every day. He instinctively does that. And no question, he just gives it. There are times when I would feel, oh, but what happens if he's gonna spend it on drugs? What happens if he's just gonna blow it away, right? What happens if he's gonna right? <laughs> but then my, my friend would just tell me, just do it. Or my former co uh, coworker, colleague, who just tells the truth without any restraint and just lends a helping hand without being asked. 
Like uh, I still remember like uh, when I when I didn't even ask him, and he just helps. Or like uh, or or when we need to tell us the boss, and he immediately be the one to tell the truth and to say we screwed up. Right? Good people. Now recently, you know, recently um, Rosanna Noah and I came to know a, a dad of one of Annabelle's classmates. And it's interesting because he instinctively, regardless of who it is, he just greets people and says this, if you need any help to pick up your kid, I'll do it. Here's my phone number, my email, and we'll pick your, your kid up. If you can't make it to, to pick up your kid, we'll just do it. No questions asked. Call me anytime, John, he says. Let me know whenever you're stuck. In traffic or at work, I'm here. Instinct of good people. They rarely debate within themselves or conjure up excuses. Rarely will you hear them say, someone else will do it, or maybe, or I'll try, or I might not be prepared or know enough. When it comes to do what is right, rather, like Yoda, do, try not. I doubt, it, okay, so if they're Christian, I doubt they debate with God either. Oh, what is your will for me? Or what should I do? Through my own observations, generally good people just do what is right and don't hesitate to decide whether it be something that is worth their while or whether it might cost them something, time, money, or comfort. If they were given a choice between self or other, they would take the latter. They would sacrifice themselves for a stranger in need. They seem to always take the latter and just because that's instinctively who they are. The instinct, that instinct through my encounters does not necessarily, unfortunately, but fortunately, it's because of God's grace, reside, it doesn't reside exclusively to Christians. This wonderful instinct can reside in Captain America and in everyone else. And to be honest, personally, it's an instinct that I'm constantly working on. An instinct that I wanted to someday, in my nature, just comes naturally that when I see someone in need, I don't have to think about myself. And I just do. This morning, I would like us to explore the concept of the Christian instinct. Now, you know, when I say that on paper, Technically, the Christian instinct should be one notch or even more notches higher above the instinct of a good person, right? Agree? When we say Christian instinct, it should be better? Should be better than the instinct of a good person. Why do I say that? Because of what Christians believe, of what we believe. The redeeming qualities of the salvation brought by Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, and the everlasting life that is now living in us should fuel that Christian instinct. Notice, that should make it us, that instinct, one notch or more notches higher than just being a good person. So, therefore, here are the two questions for us to unpack this morning. What is a Christian instinct, and how do we develop it? I believe these questions are important because most of the time, I don't know about you, but for me, a lot of times in my life, God decides not to speak. Not, like not vocally. I don't, I, I don't know about you, but if you're blessed with a burning bush, awesome, because I would love that. A burning car talking, a burning building talking, well, not a burning building, but you know what I mean. Like, that would be great, like maybe a sushi talking to me. But no, it, like, uh, if that happens, I, I, like, that means John is off the deep end already. But very rarely, doesn't it? 
So I, like, to me, this is really important because God rarely talks to me through that way. Rather, God, when he decides not to speak to us, he trusts us like Job. He trusts Job. He trusts us to lean on our Christian instinct. A Christian instinct fueled by Jesus' salvation, fueled by and counseled by the power of the Holy Spirit, fueled by the fellowship and the love of the Trinity, and the everlasting life we are living under the Father's love. You get it? This Christian instinct, he wants, he trusts us that we could lean on that. Dallas Willard said this, where God has no instructions to give, we may be sure that it's because it is best that he does not. Then, whatever lies within his moral will and whatever is undertaken in faith is his perfect will. In other words, if we have that true Christian instinct, it is within his will of what we're doing. That's the ideal goal for us as Christians. When God does not speak, can we trust that our instinct is Christian then? That's the ultimate thing for the reflection. When God does not speak, can we trust that our instinct is Christian? Let's begin with our passage this morning found in Ezra chapter 10. We will be studying this guy named Ezra. Why? Well, because he acted on his instinct. But most importantly, if you know Ezra and Nehemiah, does God speak? No. He doesn't. He doesn't speak at all. No vocal. But then it's in the Bible. So there must be something going on there, right? So let's go on. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ezra chapter 10. Ezra chapter 10, verse 1 to 5. Just follow along as I read. While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children, gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. Then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up, this matter is in your hands. We will support you, so take courage and do it. Verse 5, so Ezra rose up and put the leading priests and Levites and all Israel under oath to do what had been suggested, and they took the oath. Okay, at first glance, some of us may find this passage a little disturbing, right? Think about it. What led the Israelites and Ezra in deciding to demand anyone who married foreigners, foreign women, who have foreign children, to separate from them? If we learn anything from the stories like Ruth about women in the Old Testament days, women would not have survived if they didn't have a man to provide for them. Isn't this the meanest and cruelest thing to do against women? And since we are talking about Christian instinct, they seem to have acted really quickly. So it appeared that they acted out of instinct, but is it a really of a Christian instinct? How is Ezra's instinct a good example of a Christian one? Good question, John. Why, thank you, John. Let's start. Too early in the morning. You guys didn't get that. Anyways, let's start. First, a little history. I don't know if you're familiar with the Old Testament a bit, but here's some history on how we got here to Ezra. Things didn't go too well after this dude named King Solomon. Why is this king, you know? Well, he had a dumb moment, and that's what happened, right? Things didn't go too well after King Solomon. The nation Israel split into two kingdoms, north and south, due to a sibling rivalry. 
His kids went, yeah, okay? There were times the two kings had godly kings, but most of the time, they ended up with disobedient kings and disobeyed God and rejected him. Followed by, they followed other foreign gods. But unfortunately, not only the kings were disobedient, but the people were too. So they followed the leader. They worshiped everything and anything except the true God himself. Regardless how many prophets came to warn them, they kept being bad. Now, okay, it's not like they were stealing, killing, and cheating, okay? That's not their sin. No, their biggest folly was that they depended and worshiped themselves. They worshiped themselves. They depended on their own abilities, their careers, not God. They depended on their skills, their resources, but not God. So they opposed God. They didn't depend on God. So because of this, because of their self-focus, they, it greatly influenced their instinct in decision-making. They developed bad alliances with nations that they shouldn't have aligned with, which steered them away from God. Get the picture? Now they're very far away from God now. Unfortunately, because of these bad alliances, wars happen. And Babylon, big Babylon, I wish I had the 300 picture up there, but you know what I mean. Babylon defeated everyone, including Israel's allies. And now the Israelites found themselves captured and taken away from their land into exile. So think about this, all right? We're Canadians, and then uh, we're in Van Richmond, and then Vancouver takes over us, right? Not that that will happen, right? But, and then we get eradicated, okay? And then we get taken away. And so Richmond is barren, like nobody there. Your house is gone, like you can't even keep your house, it's gone. So it's a desert land. Okay, just picture that. And then what these guys do is these Babylon, Babylonians do is that they use your land as a battlefield for other people, against other people. So what they do usually in wars is that they pick, pick a place to war and they would pick Richmond. And then so all future wars will be in Richmond. Think about the land. No one's taking care of it and it's getting pummeled by many wars. It's pretty useless now, right? Okay, that's what happened to Israel. The Israelites were taken out of that nation and the Babylonians and the Persians, whoever comes next, used that land for battle. Now, and then these uh, Israelites, when you read through the Old Testament, what were they yearning then? They were yearning that God would speak to them again because God no longer talked to them. They desired God to speak to them. And, and uh, as throughout this whole time, they were also trying to figure out what in world name caused this whole poop storm, right? Think about it, right? Like, what caused this whole poop storm? And so they concluded that Solomon was the biggest problem, was the reason for their problems. Why? Solomon married one too many foreign wives. How many? Anyone know? 700 foreign wives. Go ahead and look it up. It's in the Bible. 700 foreign wives and 300 concubines to be precise, a thousand women. They concluded that the whole mess that they were in was because Solomon married 700 foreign wives and steered them away from God. Not to mention he had too many horses, but that's behind me. Okay. So therefore, a small group of Israelites committed themselves to a life of law keeping. The laws of the, as in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They committed themselves to these books. And they said, like Ezra, Ezra was one of them, they said, no, 
We want God to speak to us again. We want that relationship with God. So let's keep these commands hard knocks. Like really keep them. So that, and this small group consisted of devoted priests, Levites, some family heads of Judah, and Benjamin. Like verse 1, 5 says in Ezra. In chapter 1, verse 5, then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Okay? So far, so good? That's the history of the entire Old Testament. Sorry. <laughs> no, just kidding. But that's the history of how we got here. All right? This small group believed that it was because of God that they were motivated towards this holiness movement. So let's contemporize. It's like we Richmond guys, right? We got um, exiled into the various parts of the lower mainland and cannot go back home. Then one day, uh, one of the ruling nations, let's say uh, North Van, <laughs> right? Said the mayor of North Van says, okay, those Richmond people, they could go back. Now this is many years past. So we're already dead. It's the kids, 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 kids. All right? And then so then the, 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 ruling, the, the ruling guy goes, okay, you know these fifth gen Richmondites? They can go back. Who would actually go back? Because if you think about it, what's Richmond right now? Desolate, barren, no plumbing, right? Pretty much dead in the water, garbage, filth, abandoned. Would you go back? No, but these people, there's a small group of Richmondites, maybe this church, <laughs> would go back because they feel that, wait, this is our chance to get back to God. This is our chance to reestablish a nation, people of God, chosen people of God, children of God, so that we can have a relationship with God. So for Ezra, they believe their actions and the circumstances that they were happening around them were all God's gracious hand, even though God did not tell them to. All right? God didn't tell them to go and pick up and go. However, because of their instinct, because of their desire to have that relationship with God again, they went, all right? And what we notice in the first eight chapters of Ezra, because God did not speak, what we notice in the, from Ezra chapters one to eight, we notice a phrase repeated often, and it is this phrase, gracious hand of God. Gracious hand of God, it's repeated often. I'll give you some examples. Chapter seven, verse nine. He had begun his journey, that's Ezra, from Babylon on the first day of the month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. So these circumstances that Israel saw, I mean, Ezra saw, the circumstances of this ruler allowing him and a certain group of people to go, they didn't see it as, they, they didn't see, we didn't hear God telling them to go. They instinctively went because they believed that this is an opportunity given by God. Follow? The gracious hand of God. Chapter 8, verse 18 to 22. Because the gracious hand of our God was on us, they brought us Sherebiah, a capable man from the descendants of Mali, son of Levi, the son of Israel, Sherebiah's sons, brothers in all. I was verse 22. I was shamed to ask the king of the soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road because we had told the king, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against all who forsake him. So that's the situation that Ezra found himself. This small group that he belonged to believe, to believe that God was not speaking, they believed that God was not speaking because they rejected and disobeyed him. Why? Because they allowed foreigners and foreign ideas to steer them away. 
Therefore, when they were given the chance to return to their homeland to start over, they didn't dwindle, did they? They didn't wait. They didn't wait for a burning bush. They didn't wait for a proper Bible study to read and discern. They didn't go uh, try to, you know, figure things out and maybe, like, uh, we need to pray more about it. No, they just went like that. They did it by instinct and left. Because they firmly believed that that's what God wants. So we have our first two characteristics of a Christian instinct. You ready to take them down? Number one. A Christian instinct is built on the foundation that all circumstances, whether we think they are bad or good, are by the gracious hand of God. Everything that we encounter is the gracious hand of God. God did not have to allow good things to happen. God did not have to allow you to have a job. God did not need to have to allow you to have a great spouse or kids or whatever. But in the same way, God did not have to allow bad things to happen. Everything is according to the gracious hand of God, God's provision. The first characteristic of a Christian instinct, like Ezra, is that they see everything as God's provision. That's a very tough principle for all of us to swallow, isn't it? Like, especially when bad things happen. But that's a principle that is key to having a Christian instinct. Dallas word, um, then the second Second the principle for a Christian instinct is this. A Christian instinct is centered and primarily motivated to be holy and obey God at all costs. That's the second one. We notice that in Ezra and his team, they said, no, we go. We go. Willis says this, correct any causes for why God's word could not come. Do this mercilessly, whatever it is, just do it. Now, this could mean separating ourselves from certain harmful relationships, getting rid of some possessions, unplugging the computer, or throwing away our phone. For me, personally, for those who may not know my testimony, part of my uh, Christian instinct that I had to nurture was to give up my job. Um, not the recent one, but the one earlier. I found that my job caused me to be distant with God. My job, I had shift work. And it seems to every time lie on a Sunday <laughs> that I have to go to work. And I can't come on a Sunday. I can't serve God. And things, and so therefore I decided, God didn't tell me, but I decided, no, the right thing to do, because I want to draw closer to God, is to remove that barrier that's causing me to not draw close to God. So Willard says, remove everything at all costs. I agree. If anything that prevents us from getting close to God, remove it, and with no mercy. So, Christian instinct is about obeying God first and foremost. And if anything blocks that, it needs to be eradicated and not negotiated with. Oh, I've seen a lot of times that I've negotiated <laughs> with those things that block me. Oh, maybe a little bit more, or maybe less, but we really just have to get rid of it. Okay, let's move on. Recall that Ezra and this small group were devoted in keeping the law, right? So what did the law say on how they should deal with people who lure or influence others to disobey or rebel against God? Remember, recall that um, they, uh, like they decided in our verse passage this morning, they decided to let's abandon and remove 
the foreigners, right? The foreign wives and women and children. Well, that's pretty brutal, right? Can you think? That's pretty mean. But wait, let's take a look at what the law actually states about foreigners luring people away from God, okay? Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 6. If your very own brother or your son or daughter or the wife you love or your closest friend secretly entices you, saying, let us go and worship other gods, gods that neither you nor your ancestors have known, verse 7, gods of the people around you, whether near or far, from one end of the land to the other, do not yield to them or listen to them. Show them no pity. Do not spare them or shield them. You must certainly put them to death. Your hand must be the first in putting them to death, and then the hands of all people. Stone them to death because they tried to turn away you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Okay, that's what they're supposed to be doing if they were following the law. Get it? They were supposed to stone them, not to depart and lead them back to their homeland, right? They were supposed to stone them. So according to the law, Ezra and his small group of Israelites should have stoned the foreign wives to death, including their children. But they didn't. Rather, they instinctively decided, instinctively decided to separate from them, and before they personally escorted them back to their homeland, that's what they did, they actually escorted them back to the homeland with a team of men to protect them. They also waited till the weather was good, because it was raining that day. If you read on, it was raining. So it was raining and pouring, they go, okay, let's wait, let's not do that. Let's wait until the weather's proper so that we could escort these women and children back to their homeland. So at first glance, many of us, when we look at this passage of Ezra, and for them to you know, say, depart and get them back to their homeland and separate them, it seems pretty bad right? at first glance. But really, when, the, when we look at the law, when they see the law, they were supposed to stone them, right? They were supposed to stone them to death. So what gives? Are they devoted to the law then? Is there, is there something wrong here in this picture? Because shouldn't they be the group of people that are noble? If they disobey that law, does this not jeopardize their relationship with God? Good questions, right? Well, look, look at the next law that they had to read. And what is that one? Oh, he beat me to it. She beat me to it. Oh, wait, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. I wanted to create that suspense, but kind of got lost. All right, what does it say? Do not seek revenge or bear grudge against anyone among your people, but... Love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, if this sounds familiar, you're right because right below it, I should have clicked it and make it appear later. But in Matthew 22, verse 37 to 40, we see this. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. So, the next characteristic of a Christian instinct is this. All our decisions, all our actions are motivated by love for others. Why do I say that? Now, remember that conflict in between these two passages, right? These two laws, they seem to be head-on collision, right? Sidestep. Many times I encounter Christians who say that we should need to take the Bible literally, right? How many of you heard that? Right? 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 Bible literally, you gotta do it word for word. Here's my take on taking the Bible literally. Anything that, that we see here, what, what we call is a prescription of a cause, right? It's a prescription. This is what they did back then to address 
a problem. When we as Christians today, especially in the 21st century, read passages that are prescriptive, and we gotta be wise on when passages are prescriptive, but when we see the passages that are prescriptive, what do we need to do? We don't draw the prescription and say, okay, we'll use that solution into this problem. We're not gonna stone people, right? Yet we're not also going to like, uh, separate it from our wives. No, we have to focus on the principle. There's an underlying principle behind both of them. And what is it? It is to be holy. To separate yourself and be holy. So the principle is, whatever that causes you to stumble, whatever causes you to, get, to be away from God, be holy. Separate yourself from it so that you can be separated for God's purpose. You follow? Not, do not focus on the prescription, focus on the principle and the cause, the root cause. Okay, let's move on. Back on track. So the next characteristic of a Christian instinct is this, all decisions, all actions are motivated by love for others. To summarize then, what is a Christian instinct then? Number one, it is centered on obedience to God. It sees everything, number two, it sees everything as God's gracious hand at work. And all its actions and decisions are driven by love for others while loving God. That's the difference between an instinct of a good person and a Christian instinct, right? There may be some similarities, but that is the Christian instinct. We do it for the, in the obedience of God. The motivation is to obey God. We do it to draw close to God. I still remember our brother Henry. We were in a cell group together, and we were discussing this, and he brought up a point saying, well, it, like, you know, Christians, isn't it like, you know, we tend to not want to talk about being a good person, right? Because being good is not enough, he said, right? Like uh, Christians, you have to believe but sometimes I wonder if we write off that whole good person part altogether because we believe that. Right? So, in other words, this is not to write off the instinct of a good person. It goes hand in hand. Right? We have this Christian instinct, and what should come out of this Christian instinct is a good person instinct, the instinct of the good person. Agree? Agree. All right. So, to close off this whole chapter, and this whole book, I want to end off with this, of uh, Dallas Wizard's statement. The great height of our Christian development, the great height of your Christian journey of this, as disciples of Christ is not that we always hear God's voice. We don't. But that we are trained under the hand of God, which includes hearing God as he speaks and guides, in such a way that we are able to stand at our appointed times and places in faith, which is trust that everything is by God's grace, Hope that whatever happens is according to his will and love, a sacrificial love for others, even without a word from God. And having done everything to stand firm. Because in Christian maturity, it is just like adult maturity. When you, we were children, what did we do? We kept on asking, we, 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 well, we looked towards our parents to tell us what to do, right? Agree? But as we become adults, do you want your parents to continue to nag you on what to do? Come on, that's an obvious question. Respond. No, right? You don't want your mommy and daddy to nag you. Some of you don't have your mommy and daddy now, but you know what I mean. You do not need to, to be told what to do. Same thing with Christian maturity. As we continue to grow in Christ, 
we should be able to say whatever, are we confident? We should be able to be confident as we continue to grow that our actions, our decisions, our words, whatever we think should be in line with God's will. We shouldn't be desiring and always seeking to say, God, what do you want for me? Say to me, right? No, God would say, well, I trust your judgment. I think you need a step of faith and trust your judgment. I guess I trust you. God trusts you to make that judgment. Are you able to trust yourself that your instinct is a Christian one? Amen? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. As we close this series, I want to reiterate for all of us and just as we ask ourselves, how are we doing? How are we, each of us, doing in relationship with you when we went through this whole entire series together? Lord, as we reflect, as we pray, as we have conversations with you in answering that question, may you open our hearts to see where we are at. Maybe there are things that we need to remove in our, in our lives that are blocking us from, from having a relationship with you. Maybe it's something that we need to obey, but we're not doing it. You're calling us to obey, but we're not doing it. Help us, empower us to obey. And Lord, maybe we just don't see things as your gracious hand working. May you open our eyes. Help us see that everything before us is by your hand. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.